Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. I'm going to receive that applause and tell you guys that what I was doing is I was peeking in the Maldonado monster cake boxes over there. And I want to tell you that cake pops is the least of it. There is the most beautiful cookie inside that I wanted to pop in my mouth, but, you know, then I'd have a dry mouth right now. And there's cupcakes in there, too. And you guys, you have blessed us with abundance this morning. And I just really want to say thank you. And... um, I know a lot of you know this, that I am a mother of six children and grandmother of eight. And just recently, we had great-granddaughter number three. So um, mothering is so much a part of my life and really has been all my life because our youngest is 26 and our oldest is 51. So talk about the wide continuum of mothering. Here it is. And uh, as I was just reflecting on what it means to be a mother, I think it's a spirit. I think there's a, there's a heart that we have, whether we're male or female, of nurturing one another, of giving each other love. And I think that God reveals that to us at the very beginning in Genesis when he says, male and female, I created them in my image. And so God has a mother heart. And I know so many of you that are here in person, and I know so many of you that are here on Facebook or YouTube, and I know how nurturing and how amazing you are. And we have this beautiful community with the heart of moms and dads for one another. And that is beautiful. And I just wanted to say that before I even begin talking about something totally different. So here we go. Um, I I brought my Bible. It's right here in my iPhone. And we have communion after the teaching this morning, and I have communion in my hand, and I'm going to lead you in communion, but there's communion on either side here. And if you're at home this morning, um, I'm hoping that you've gotten your communion elements ready, but you're going to have another chance to do that. And we're going to partake together, which is also special and amazing. Um... We've been in John chapter 15, and what I really love about that chapter is it's just the words of Jesus. We're hearing the heart of Jesus in this chapter, and uh, these are the weeks after Easter. We've talked about the cross, and we've talked about the empty tomb, and we've talked about the resurrected Christ who wants us to see him. And this next Thursday, if you're in a liturgical church, we're going to celebrate something called Ascension Day. And that means that Jesus says, my my corporate, corporal body is leaving you, but I'm not leaving you because I'm going to give you a spirit, a Holy Spirit, to help you, to continue to be with you. We celebrate a resurrected Christ who sent us his spirit and a resurrected life. There's power in an empty tomb. God always with us. And then we look forward even to Pentecost, which is in two weeks on May the 23rd, and we celebrate again as we do year after year after year because that's how life goes, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And even though we celebrate his coming, he's here with us right now. 
and I want to pray this prayer. And I kind of stole some Henry Nouwen's words and added some of my own. But please, please, please hear these words. Dear God, we are so afraid to open our clenched fists. Who will we be when we have nothing left to hold on to? Who will we be when we stand before you with empty hands? Please help us to gradually open our hands right now and to discover that we are not what we own. We are not what we know. We are not the rules we follow or the laws we try to keep. But we are only what you want to give us. And what you want to give us and do give us over and over and over again is unconditional, everlasting love so that it can pour through us and into all the world. Amen. So my scripture that was given to me by our teaching pastor, Ryan Longnecker, is the end of chapter John 15. And... um, You know, at the beginning, he said that he was the vine and that we are the branches of that vine, called to abide, to live in that vine, and to bear fruit while we're there. And as Pastor Ryan taught us, Jesus alone is our shepherd, and each of us are only asked to feed the sheep in our flock. And when I thought about that, I thought about, yeah, those are my neighbors too. That that has nothing to do with church. That has everything to do with the oikos, with that little community that God has given each and every one of us. Pastor Danny reminded us last week that we abide in his love. In fact, we live out as Christians, as Jesus followers, an apologetic of love. And this morning we're going to look at the rest of that chapter, and I am going to read to you some verses from the message, which is a paraphrase, so I just want to say that up front. It begins in verse 17, and even though Danny used this last week, I'm stealing it. I'm stealing this verse because it's very, very important. But remember the root command. If we abide in the vine... The vine that is Jesus, he abides in the root. Remember the root command, love one another. If you find the godless world is hating you, remember it got its start hating me. If I hadn't done what I have done among them, works no one has ever done, they wouldn't be to blame. But they saw the God's signs and hated anyway, both me and my father. Interesting, they have verified the truth of their own scriptures where it is written, they hated me for no good reason. The next chapter, chapter 16, begins like this. I've told you these things to prepare you for the rough times ahead. They're going to throw you out of the meeting places. There will even come a time when anyone who kills you will think he's doing God a favor. They will do these things because they never really understood the Father. I've told you these things so that when the time comes and they start in on you, you'll be well warned and ready for them. I didn't tell you this earlier because I was with you every day. 
but now I am on my way to the one who sent me. And in the voice translation, that uh, chapter 16, verse 1 says this, Jesus speaks these words. I'm telling you all of this so that you may avoid the offenses that are coming. But Jesus was offensive, and offensiveness was returned to him. Jesus warns us about the mistreatment we can expect. People will be offended by us. People are meant to be offended by us. Can we own that? And although he is leaving his body, he is sending us the Holy Spirit, and there is no reason for us to be afraid. In fact, we, the ecclesia, the called-out ones, the church, we are meant to thrive under the persecution that comes from being found offensive. Last week, Pastor Danny also talked about Emperor Constantine, who in about 400 A.D. made the church legal in the eyes of the empire, in the eyes of the state. My guess is that that's just about the time that the church actually became a part of the culture. We humans became and are obsessed with power and political prominence as a means of influencing culture. We're still that way because we're still humans. Look at us recently and the large part that politics seems to play in our churches. But as Christians, as Jesus followers, as Jesus emulators, as a people learning to live and love like Jesus, we have an obligation to strive for justice and freedom through the transforming power and call of Scripture and of the Spirit. Rather than grasping for and exerting power, the real work of the kingdom of God on earth is not only to thrive, but to produce change, transformation in the midst of fierce attacks and oppression. And Jesus announces this coming persecution to his followers believing that this will lead to their finest hour. You know, and it does. Because if we read scripture after that, it becomes the finest hour of the church. As I recently may have posted on Facebook or in our newsletter, and I know that I've said many, many times, probably to many of you, Jesus, God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what is, what is so important about his sameness is that it's always doing a new thing. That's what's the same about God. So I'm going to pose some questions. Do you read the Bible for yourself? Maybe with other people? How often? Who, if anyone, taught you what the passages mean? Do you just accept what some pastor in your pastor present has told you the passages mean? Which translation are you reading? If you read English, <laughs> there are many to choose from. There are more than 450 translations of the Bible into English that have been written. 
450. Who did the translating? Was it an individual or a committee? What was their theological bent? And what source documents did they use? There are thousands and thousands of source documents. Some are only fragments, little pieces of papyrus that are still found in, in caves, in all kinds of crazy places. <sighs> Some of them are long, long versions, like the New Testament has been found in several places totally complete. In fact, the New Testament has been preserved in more ancient manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature. Listen to this. 5,800 New Testament pieces and have been found in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, 9,300 in various other languages. That makes it amazingly believable. That makes it real. We're not, this, these words that is in our book, they, it, they didn't come about because we found one copy of a document. There's thousands and thousands of documents that attest to the scripture that today we call the Bible. The Old Testament has over 800 scrolls and codices, including the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I don't know if you guys saw it in the news, but as recently as a couple of weeks ago, they just authenticated another document as being a source document for parts of the Old Testament. I think it was for Deuteronomy. This book, our book, this God book is powerful. And it was written for us to read it. This is also something I probably mentioned before, but there's something that the Jewish community does when they study scripture, and it's called midrash, and it's a way of arguing through the passages. Usually with other people arguing with you, they use like rabbinical and scholarly commentaries. They use papers and opinions, many of which disagree with one another. And then they finally, through the arguing, they actually come to their own conclusions on what for them in that season, that scripture might mean. But then the next time that they argue that scripture or wrestle with it, they might change their minds. I have been a part of a Bible study. This is making me crazy. All right. All right, here I go. I feel free. <laughs> I was like stuck to that pole. Um, for about the past almost six years, I've been involved in Bible study with five other women. And we have used this Midrash way of dealing with the scripture. I don't think I've ever been as close to God in some of those studies we disagree with one another, we argue, we, we, we plead our case. No, no, it means this. We pull in books that we're reading or articles, and we argue back and forth, and sometimes we never reach any conclusion at all, but what we've done is we've handled the word of God. We have wrestled with this scripture, and in these past six years, I would tell you that my theology has changed. 
and my faith has grown. And the beauty of reading this Bible over and over and over again to see what God wants to say to me has been unsurpassed maybe by anything else I've ever done in my life when it comes to my theology, even going to seminary. It was a beautiful thing to wrestle with scripture, and I think that this is another one of those things that God at the very beginning asks us to do because in Genesis, I think it's chapter 30, there's the story of this guy named Jacob, and one night he finds himself on the road and he starts wrestling with someone that he calls the angel of the Lord, and he wrestles all night long with that angel. And the next morning, he's left with a mark. He's left with a limp <laughs> that tells him he's been wrestling with God. What does that limp look like for you? Where's your limp? I mean, I have a limp, <laughs> and, and I also have probably limps in my heart that have to do with this Bible study that I've been a part of. Um, and I would want to exhort us to not quit wrestling with Scripture until God has left his mark on us and we ask him and tell him, we're not quitting. We will not stop wrestling with you, God, and with your word until you bless us. God left Jacob with a mark, a memory of the wrestling and he changed his name to Israel, and he became a mighty nation. When we wrestle with scripture, it is meant to change us. It's meant to change us not just once, but over and over and over again. You know, I'm at that point in life where I am redundant, so I say the same things. The very first time I ever did a VBS, Vacation Bible School, this was the name. I am on an amazing journey with Jesus Christ. I want to speak that over each of us because that is, that is what's going on. Each and every one of us, we are on an amazing journey with Jesus Christ. Could we accept that and allow him to take us where he wants us to go. Jacob had tenacity. And now I'm going to throw in a really big word. I love this word. Perichoresis. I probably mispronounced it. It's what makes trinity, trinity. So it's kind of, it kind of explains God's sacred insides. It establishes what really is. It's our final reality to participate in the mutual interdependence of the Trinity in Christ through the Spirit, and then to extend this interdependence to others, to all others. Genuine reality is relational. Genuine atonement is reconciliation. There is a uh, theologian at Yale, his name is Miroslav Wolf. I like that a lot. Um, he says this, 
He concludes that the various persons of the Trinity relate to one another in community and in oneness while remaining wholly distinct. They are one, yet distinctly different. And that is how we are meant to be in Christ. This is where true Christian unity comes from, and this unity, our unity, is kind of breaking at the seams in the crazy world that we live in. And I'm going to assert here that we must endure hostility and opposition, and we must trust that God is big enough to hold all of our differences. And because our Jesus was offensive, that's who he calls us to be. He offended the kingdoms of this world, the powers and the empires that existed, that still exist. He was offensive to the religious Pharisees and the Sadducees who wanted him to stop coloring outside the lines, stop pushing the boundaries, play by the rules. And if he wasn't willing to do that, they were going to kill him. Keep those rules, but Jesus couldn't do that. And neither are we supposed to, which reminds me of Galatians chapter 5. Verse 1 says this, We are to stand strong in our freedom. The anointed one freed us so we wouldn't spend one more day under the yoke of slavery trapped under the law. And then verse 14 in Galatians 5 says this, For the whole law comes down to this one instruction, love your neighbor as yourself. So why all this vicious gnawing on each other? If you are not careful, you will find you've eaten each other alive. And I'm reading you from the voice translation there. That is straight out of the Bible. This is us today. The church, Big C Church, Christians, we gnaw at each other. I'm right, you're wrong. No, 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 no. You're wrong, I'm right. We offend one another, but we don't offend the world. (laughs) How small does that make the God that we profess to love and to serve? Is he not bigger, much bigger than that? At the center of our faith should be the gospel, the cross, Christ resurrected. The question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Our faith finds its expression in scripture, but our faith is in God. It's actually not in the Bible. We know God through the Spirit, who makes God known to us through Scripture. So please, please hear me. Scripture is meant to shape our identity. Scripture is meant to change us. And then let's get to that loving our neighbor part that uh, Pastor Danny already talked about so beautifully. Um, 
Loving our neighbor is all about justice. It's about the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And here we might need to ask this question, who's justice? What definition? I'm going to say it's Jesus's justice. Behavior that conforms to the teachings of Jesus and that emerges, comes from the direction of the Holy Spirit. It is not defined by the Magna Carta. It is not defined by any other social formation of law. It is not defined by the Constitution, but it is defined by Jesus and the Spirit through Scripture, through the Bible. And that is love of God, love of self, love of others, and love of the world. That is what is right. Jesus had a vision of justice, of peace, and of the end of the reign of the oppressors. And it begins with us human beings who follow Jesus, creating justice through grace, forgiveness, love. We proclaim and embody justice by fighting against injustice. And that is really what Acts 2 and 4 were about. A little flock of Jesus followers hanging out, kind of like us right now, cemented together through fellowship, living out justice by actively sharing goods and speaking with boldness against systemic injustices, the remnant that can actualize the kingdom of God on earth. Again, Ecclesia, us, the called-out church, Instead of oppression, there is fellowship. Instead of hierarchy, there is spiritual giftedness. Instead of abusive power, there are the twin powers of love and sacrifice. Ecclesia called out as an alternative society where justice is practiced and the table is so big. There's so much room. So much room to include all those who want to come and eat and drink. And then, do we dare to take this message into the public square where we will be found and called offensive? The people of God, of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, that weird little church, Long Beach Christian Fellowship, Could this be our finest hour? Are we willing? So much here. I always tell you guys that I need two weeks to unpack it all. I want to end before we take communion by reading that prayer that I read at the beginning again. Dear God, we are so afraid to open our clenched fists. Who will we be when we have nothing left to hold on to? The prayer just hit the floor, guys, but it's being rescued. Who will we be when we have nothing to hold on to? Who will we be when we stand before you with empty hands? Please, Jesus, please, Jesus, help us to gradually open our hands right now.
and to discover that we are not what we own, not what we know. We are not the rules that we follow or the laws that we try to keep, but we are only what you want to give us. And what you want to give us is love, unconditional, everlasting love, so that it can pour through us and into this world. Amen and amen and amen.